You're listening to Absolute AI. Conversations with the humans behind artificial intelligence, where data scientists, ML researchers, startup founders, and enterprise execs talk about cutting-edge innovations and unique challenges posed by this new technological frontier. Tune in for interviews with leading experts to anticipate trends before they emerge. Hi, thanks for joining us on Absolute AI, conversations with the humans behind artificial intelligence. I'm your host, Melody Travers, and today I'm speaking with Mark Kuyavsky. Mark has had a long career working on the front lines of technology transformation with companies like Accenture, Oracle, and Hewlett-Packard. As a strategy consultant, he has helped many healthcare organizations improve their delivery capabilities and is now leading his company, Aztec Health, to liberate patient health data. Welcome to Absolute AI, Mark. Thanks, Melody. It's great to be here. So uh, tell me a little bit about yourself, specifically the touch points in your biography that relate to your engagement with technology and uh, artificial intelligence. Thanks. Um, So I've really been fascinated with all the different technology changes that have happened over the last 20 years and have been involved primarily as a strategy consultant, just helping organizations sort through all the different decisions they have to make to take advantage of that and really to improve the ways that they interact with their customers and deliver products and services. Um, In the last several years, uh, I've been focused primarily in healthcare, mainly because it's an area that really needs uh, quite a bit of attention. And we're all patients, right? And we're all coming through a very extraordinary time. And it just makes a lot of sense uh, right now to focus that attention with those emerging technologies and how they can transform the way that healthcare is delivered. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I want to dive right into that. So, um, but before we do, I just want to hear a little bit about how you got started. Um, you have your MS in computer science. So what made you decide to go into that direction? And, and what were some of the exciting things that you thought, okay, this is where the world is going? That's a great um, question. It's funny because I have always had this story about um, being in financial services and working as an equities trader. And every once in a while, our systems would crash and we'd have to take out these bowling sheets, we call them. And I was jotting down you know, multi-million dollar trades that we needed to input later into the system. I said, there's got to be a better way than this. <laughs> and that really got me into technology, uh, working with fault-tolerant platforms. And Mm -hmm. fault-tolerant platforms really were the predecessor of cloud technologies and this ability to create managed services so that organizations didn't need to focus on being data center experts. They could focus Mm -hmm. on their primary strengths. And, you know, through that process, you know, like I said, we've gone through several epics. You know, one of the first ones was just the rise of the internet and the ability to use these uh, networks and distributed systems. I mean, think about that. It was only about seven or eight years ago when we were still using dial-ups, right? We didn't have Wi-Fi and ubiquitous <laughs> communication. Right. So this ability, yeah. you know, to connect all those things together and to leverage open source technologies and everything that have really brought down the costs of computing as well as storage has really opened up great opportunities. And healthcare in particular, I started working... 20 years ago in delivering the first EHR systems, you know, and 
there was a lot of agitation and pain when that went on because you know behaviors had to be changed, and that's still kind of a common thing that I hear when I go in and talk to operations teams, medical delivery teams. Says EHR, that's the bane of my existence. But that's where all the information lies, right? Yeah. So in healthcare, we've had this constant pain point of the inability to share data. Data is always locked up in silos. There's data that's over there in the HR record. There's data that's in the imaging systems. There's data now that you can find in all different kinds of unstructured formats like mm -hmm. Fitbits and biometrics uh, monitors and physician's notes, right? But within all of that, you know, lies a tremendous amount of information that can be used to create actionable decisions, actionable yeah. decisions. And that's where AI now presents itself with this next generation of interoperable data. Yeah, let's let's dive right into that, because I know as Aztec Health, you guys, you know, one of the biggest initiatives is um, figuring out a system for patient health data be to become interoperable. Um, and that was based on the federal mandate in 2020, correct? Yeah. Yeah. It was like the last two bits of regulation um, from the Centers of Medicare and Medicaid Services, but the process has been going on for almost two decades. Um, mm. It was in the mid-2000s that there was a consensus that said, you know, we need to build a way to get to that point where data could be interchanged and shared and made more useful. Um, yeah. So there had to be a lot of things that, that had changed within the industry. One of the first things was the adoption of a common data standard. Mm -hmm. So the agreement for all the principles, first of all, to accept that was monumental. Um, it's basically encapsulated under... Um, uh, the term of HL7. HL7 is a data format that um, allows for uh, interoperability. Uh, HL7 okay. itself, though, wasn't quite enough. Uh, we needed some more modernization for that ability to scale, you know, move outside the bounds of an organization to get into this really um, ubiquitous um, condition of being able to share data. So interoperability itself as a movement is one thing that's been mandated, everyone needs to comply now. And that's always yeah. been something that you needed to do in healthcare is to put some kind of of milestone or a penalty for inaction. So we now have that. There's an impetus to do that. Mm -hmm. But interoperability itself has a whole set of uh, data and decision points to it. You can have just a rudimentary um, acceptance and compliance of interoperability, or you can have pure semantic interoperability. And that's really where the eventual desired state will be. And semantic interoperability means all that decision making, all that information flow happens at the machine level. So every okay. system within that incredibly complex healthcare delivery environment can interchange data. So in order to do that, would that mean like a standardization of the types of questions that are asked or the the way that things are filled out? Because, um, again, I'm, I'm taking a step back and thinking about um, this problem as I've experienced it, right? So Exactly. We all have, right? Right. So I 
I was going to a new doctor. I, uh, you know, transitioning. This is many years ago, but from my pediatrician to a regular doctor, and, and they, they go, hand "Great, you that where?" Clipboard and say, "Record everything that you know about yours and your yes. children's data, right?" And and they go, "When did you have the chicken pox?" And I go, "I don't know. I know I had it." They're like, "Oh, were you vaccinated?" I'm like, "I don't know." Like, you know, there was all this information, and I remember going to the pediatrician, and they go, "Hold on." We have to go into the basement. There's this, uh, you know, this array of hard copy files. Let's see if yours is still on file. And therein lies the problem, right? Therein lies the problem, right? Yeah. So, okay. So fast forward now, um, my doctor has a has platforms and everything. I can check those things a lot more easily. But what are those um, stumbling blocks that you have to overcome like on a systematic level to to get to the place where you can say, okay, um, we have all this information about you. And you know what? Because you were in this location and maybe there was um, some toxic chemicals or something, maybe you should get checked for this. Like we see that you lived there and then you moved here and now you're having all these health issues, you know, making those connections that will improve our lives. Well, you know, you've, you've uncovered a lot of really interesting points. That last one is really about how AI machine level learning can look and understand those predictive patterns. You know, they look at the uh, semantics of those particular cases, and then are able to aggregate that across, you know, this entire spectrum of people that have similar circumstances to you. You know, you have mm-hmm. a basic medical profile. You're a person of this age. Um, you've had, you know, um, this type of medical history. Your current mm-hmm. status is this. Your vitals are that. Your labs are this. Right. You can bring that all together and develop models that are consistent across a large demographic. Right. So now that we can um, infer. Uh, a lot more information about your current state and your pers- patient healthcare lifestyle. So going back to that, you know, original um, statement, you know, what really is necessary to enable this? I saw this interesting stat that said interoperability is twenty percent technology and eighty percent politics and economics. Right? Because <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> the capability has been there. Um, yeah. One of the most important conditions to understand is that there are a lot of constituents in healthcare that don't want to give up the data. You know, mm. So there has to be ways that you can please all the constituencies. So one of the yeah. ways you do that, you know, and you can think also of the requirements of interoperability as, as plumbing. You, know, you need to mm. put in the application program interfaces, APIs, which is the nuance of communication and cloud-based uh, technology, to allow that sharing of data. Once you place in those APIs, and there are many ways to you know, skin that particular cat, you can do it yourself, you can uh, use third-party vendors, there are all the different ways to achieve compliance. But once you do that, then what, right? And that's kind of the important question I was bringing up earlier about organizations moving to just tactically comply or consider it a strategic initiative, right? And this is yeah. a strategic initiative because now all of a sudden, you know, you've opened up this capability to greatly improve the delivery of healthcare, both from the provider standpoint, right? Doctors mm-hmm. are able to infer a tremendous amount of data on a particular cases to make informed decisions. We as patients, because, you know, we're all benefiting from this better um, uh, way of calibrating our particular 
journey. And then, you know, the payers, you know, we're in a hybrid um, insurance dominated public and private system that mm -hmm. needs efficiency. So one of the yeah. buzzwords in, um, in medicine today in healthcare is value-based care, right? Value-based care is all about creating incentives to improve the delivery of healthcare, you know, across all these different demographics, demographics. And one of the things that enables that immediately is this ability to share data. Yeah, absolutely. Can you give me some examples of how um, AI and interoperability are improving um, workflows and, and diagnostics right now? Sure. You know, we have a couple of um, interesting uh, use cases, you know, that go from what you think would be easy and mundane to very complicated. So one of the um, projects that we worked at recently was with a large um, hospital uh, network that asked us a question. Um, every hospital, and this is part of that uh, value-based care uh, outlook, um, has to um, adhere and, and respond to the HCAP surveys that all patients um, com uh, uh, comply with after they leave um, hospital care, it's in hospital care. So there's a great amount of information that's on these surveys. It talks about communications with doctors, communications with nurses, uh, the responsiveness of hospital staff, pain management, right? All these things that are part of that uh, profile that goes into the decision-making for something like staffing of nurses. Mm. So in this hospital organization, this was a manual process. They were trying to you know, feed uh, different analytics uh, engines, um, taking the outcomes of these surveys and using that to translate, well, how am I going to improve the way that, um, you know, we schedule around patient care? And we were actually able to use an AI technology to automate that process. So now their scheduling is greatly uh, influenced by the predictive models and the outcomes of the AI engine that is interpreting this data. You know, wow. so fascinating way of, of doing it. Mm -hmm. A second one that I think is really interesting and everybody I think can relate to um, is that virtually every, um, you know, primary care physician's office, every specialist uh, deals with um, renewing and refilling prescriptions, right? It's a mm -hmm. pretty basic process. It is still a highly manual process. You know, we were um, looking at several organizations and the profile is very similar. Um, nursing team comes in, has 104 email messages, 72 uh, phone messages, a whole stack of faxes, and we're still using faxes, um, that had to be <laughs> sorted through and yeah. put in a workflow process so that the doctor could review, okay, send it to the payer, come back, and then contact the pharmacy. Well, what happens in the majority of those cases, and it's a good example, the prescription for a patient uh, to go on to an insulin regimen goes eventually to that payer, and the payer says, well, we don't support that drug, but we do support these two. Okay, now it's got to go back through that process to the doctor, to the nurse, to the patient, back to the nurse, back to the doctor, back to the payer. Right. Mm -hmm. And this goes on on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Why can't we automate this process? And now we can because of the fact 
that you know we've cre created now this communication and transparency between the payers and the providers. Uh, this is a critical element that was missing in order to be able to enable that from a technology standpoint. So you're seeing this now being done um, you know, across the board, but it's an indication of, again, of how AI is being used to modernize the process so now those nurses and operations people can focus more on the patients. Yeah, those are great examples. Absolute AI is sponsored by Inadata, a leading data engineering company. From startups to enterprise, Inadata delivers ground truth training data and customized AI services and platforms at scale. Learn more at Inadata.com. I want to get back to, because um, those efficiencies seem so obvious, like why, what it takes so long for us to solve these problems. Um, so I want to talk again about some of those barriers and inhibitors, especially like HIPAA and data security, because while it's amazing what this data can do, you know, we've seen with data breaches, um, with some of the ways that uh, data has been used or people have collected data and used it in nefarious ways. You know, my personal health data is so important right. to me, right? Um, right? If you know that I need to go in on a regular basis for this kind of, you know, clinical treatment, you could track where I'm going, you could sell to me, you could, you know, you that and that should be something that is so protected. So talk Absolutely. to me about how these systems are going to get all of these great um, efficiencies, but also protect all of the patients and um, and their personal health records. No, that's a tremendous question. That always comes up too, and it needs to be addressed really directly. And it all goes back to what I was discussing earlier about strategy and understanding all the elements that need to be complied with and do that. Um, I'll give an example, though, of another industry that underwent that same kind of transformation, uh, and that's the financial services industry. You know, 20 years ago, everything in financial services, and, and first of all, you know, back to faxes, things like that, the same conditions happened, uh, were, were, were seen in, in financial uh, services. You know, you had mm -hmm. uh, paper invoices, you had paper um, stock transitions, right? Everything had to digitize first. So that right. is an ongoing thing in healthcare right now. We have to get away from paper-based and move to digitization. That's an important element. Now, the security element, you know, is another thing. Now, you think about it 20 years ago, we're all saying, there's no way I'm going to put my financial information on the internet. There's no way that I'm going to allow a breach or potential breach of my financial well-being. Well, guess what? We're using our smartphones to pay Venmo, uh, use Venmo to pay yeah. our electric bills now, right? Yeah. You know, we've gotten the technology to the point where it's evolved to make all those things. It's not to say that breaches don't still happen, but that's why it's adamant to have a strong consideration of how you architect those decisions. Mm -hmm. So the architecture of those decisions is the important part. And that's where the technology comes in. Um, and that's where you need to, you know, uh, adhere to best practice standards for governance, um, data security, that can be provided, you know, um, uh, in, in a very concise way, right? Cloud-based um, applications, cloud-based um, commerce, you know, has greatly evolved where data is always going to be protected because 
the safeguards are there. Your only, uh, you know, your, your biggest weakness is the weakest point, right? So that always right. has to be uh, analyzed a concern. And that's usually you as the uh, subscriber <laughs> and your password Using my program, pet right? name as right? uh, my so, password. So biometrics <laughs> can do that. But that's a really important consideration because one yeah. thing that I think scares most organizations talking about that is the potential for breach. And that just can't happen. So. Yeah. One of the things to consider is the fact that with a lot of these um, health information exchanges and the way that you know uh, data is currently being envisioned, and even in the last six months, you've seen dozens of companies coming up that are doing this, is that you can anonymize the data. Mm-hmm. What you really want from you know this overall constructive point of view is an understanding of what exactly is happening in patient cases, etymology of diseases. Uh, the way that um, drug research is done on different types of patients, you don't need to know who the patients are. You do need to know, you know, the demographic information, mm. you know, the age, the um, uh, uh, history of, 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 of diseases, things like this. But that's why, you know, we can find this happy medium mm-hmm. to be able to get tremendous intelligence out of the data, but not sacrifice health patients' uh, data security. Fantastic. Yeah. And you you mentioned uh, the financial industry. Have there been parts of the infrastructure that have been um, used that were put in place or you know, kind of tested out in the financial sector um, and then transferred over to um, how we're dealing with healthcare data? Um, absolutely. You know, so not to get too deep into the technology of things, but you know that you have certain stages um, in which data that's being exchanged um, can be considered at rest or it's being used by other applications. Mm -hmm. Um, So back to the whole idea of best practices around security, one thing the financial industry was able to do was to really harden transactions, you know, to be able to encrypt communication, both, Mm -hmm. you know, as it flowed in between systems and then as it stayed at rest. You know, so like I said, we're not getting too deep into that. Yes, there absolutely has been uh, a considerable, you know, maturity of those environments mm-hmm. that has been able to transpose itself into this evolving healthcare interoperability um, status that we're in now. Um, and you know, you are seeing this quite a bit in its infancy. Um, like um, I see organizations and new models coming out where um, companies will host the data in one of the big um, cloud platforms like Amazon or Google or Azure. Um, But, you know, what's important is that um, the same principles that are used to um, keep uh, data um, separate and managed at the same time, you know, have private cloud entities and, you know, all the um, um, architectural um, improvements have been made so you can feel rest assured that this mm-hmm. is going to be a secure environment. But again, it's incumbent upon every organization to have that um, capability to understand you know, what good is and never to lose sight that that ultimate responsibility is on them. Yeah. And what and what does that mean for the individual patient? So, um, you know, we've been looking at this from kind of a structural perspective. You've talked about um, patient care. You've talked about um, the payers, so the insurance industry. So, 
But for the patient, will this also give me the opportunity to, you know, not have somebody go into a, a basement and find a hard copy, but I can take my own data with me and no matter what hospital I go to or physician I go to and have a comprehensive story of, of my own health as well. Right. No, that's actually one of the biggest advantages. And um, you'll always have that opportunity to opt in or opt out. Mm -hmm. um, if you decide to opt in, you know, what you can see, again, is a real um, uh, maturation of your personal uh, profile that you mm -hmm. see on your portals right now. I mean, you like in the right now, it's a very static list of all the things, of your visits, of your medicines, of, you know, the outcomes of your labs. And you can foresee in the future having uh, a much greater uh, experience when you access your personal healthcare lifecycle portal, you know, mm -hmm. talks about all things that can impact you at different stages of your life, right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, history of disease and that, um, obviously we're um, coming so far down the pike on, on genomics and understanding all those um, characteristics within your family lines that can, again, be um, encapsulated for yourself and for your personal use, but then it's easily accessed by those specialists and then say, I can now plug this in and, you know, um, have all these other deterministic uh, points of reference to apply to you to give you the best care that I can. You know, I have another good example just to um, kind of illustrate this in, in, in a way is that there are 10,000 drug rehab clinics across the country. None of them speak to each other, right? Mm. They all have historiographies of their different patients, and they all follow uh, different profiles. They can really learn from each other because what's successful over here may become successful over, over there. So, again, right. pulling out the main demographic, informa demographic information, you know, anonymized, will allow uh, physicians and uh, treatment professionals to prescribe, you know, the best uh, treatment course for every patient, you know, so all of us will benefit from that, you know, to, yeah. to a tremendous extent. That's a great example. So we've talked a lot about the data, which is um, on our show, we always talk about how AI is really made up of uh, the algorithms and the data. Um, but I want to talk about uh, the current state of how AI is taking advantage of, um, like you said, there's so many open source algorithms now. This data is becoming more available, more comprehensive. Um, so talk to me about how AI is taking advantage of this um, and then what it will mean for the future of AI in healthcare. Well, that's the whole thing. You know, the future is the limit. And, you know, one term that we've, I've, that stick with me all these years that is that it's all about the data, you mm -hmm. know, um, 25 years ago it was all about the data. It still <laughs> is. And data is being created in so many different ways now, um, that AI can really take advantage of it. And the key to having a really robust AI machine level learning language that also uses, by the way, which is really important, medical natural language processes, right? Mm -hmm. Medicine has a complex terminology. I'm saying the obvious again, but it's a consistent methodology. So yeah. when AI and um, all of those um, algorithmic models 
uh, is able to ingest more and more data, and that's what makes it all work. It learns, it gets smarter, it, it completely uh, begins to understand the environments. Then pulling in you know, that ability to understand the medical terminology allows you to even imagine the type of applications that can be built now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the um, data sets that I, I spoke about is uh, the newest one, uh, which is Fast Health Information Resources. We call it FIRE. It's a great acronym. But now they're building applications that are called SMART on FIRE, right? <laughs> and this is really taking it to the next level, you know, for example, patients with diabetes, you know, that, you know, now that you have these biomonitors that don't require you to, you know, prick your finger, that you can always get these metrics on a constant real-time basis, now you'll be able to create applications that take advantage of that and completely monitor um, a diabetic patient's progress, you know, with proactive, um, you know, types of methodologies, right? So we're all going to be able to take advantage of that through all of these applications that are going to take advantage of that AI-generated data, mm. you know? So again, the sky's the limit. We're just really scratching the surface, and I think that's what's really excited. You know, we haven't even touched upon, you know, drug development, um, you know, device manufacturing, everything else that kind of touches that um, that healthcare universe. But, you know, the primary beneficiaries in the short run will be everybody who's affected by value-based care. Hmm. Yeah, it, a lot of the examples that we had talked about at the beginning um, were much more about automating manual processes, right? Which, which uh, as we said, like the healthcare industry definitely, I mean, it's still going from, from paper <laughs> to digitization. You have um, to walk before we run, you know? Right, right. There. So, so that's super important. But then, um, I think the, the very exciting next stage or, you know, tier of AI advancement that you were talking about was really this like predictive analytics and, um, getting into more decision science rather than, um, you know, just simple automation. So with that um, in mind, I'm going to ask my uh, my always last question that's a little goofy, but um, you can take it in any direction you like. So if you were to write a sci-fi novel about the year 2041, what does the world look like and have the robots taken over? Ha, great question, you know, and... Um... I think that it's great when you see where they were predicting us 25 years ago and where we've gotten. And the fact that, you know, a lot of times we haven't achieved a Jetson-like experience of flying cars and things like that. But I think that um, one of the first things that we're going to realize in that is that life expectancy is going to be 100 years plus. So we'll need to make sure we take care of ourselves and our bodies to be able to maintain that, right? I mean, I think the possibilities are there, but, you know, to live longer lives. Um, you know, the important um, lessons that we're learning on guiding the direction of, you know, artificial intelligence and everything go that should keep us, you know, hopefully comfortably in control of that curve. But I can see us right. very well being in this, you know, uh, tremendous society that has overcome a lot of debilitating illness and the things that keep us from achieving 
other great things. I think that in that time period that we will already be well on the way to populating other worlds and, you know, really pushing the boundaries of, of science. So I don't really believe in the um, uh, Terminator scenario, but that's why we need to stay uh, cognizant of it and to do all the things that we can do just to make sure that all the science moves forward in a straight and positive way. Excellent. Uh, well, thank you, Mark. Um, let's wrap up with some calls to action. How can people find out more about you and Aztec Health and, um, yeah, anything else you want to well, leave you know, off Come with? visit us at our website at Aztec Health. Um, I'm on all the different social media channels. So um, I love responding to people. Um, we're all kind of in a collective um, with people that, um, you know, work in healthcare organizations, you know, we're all talking about this. And obviously we're emerging from a very difficult period, but I think the important part is to reflect on all those healthcare and frontline practitioners, because, you know, one of the reasons why I do this and one of the reasons why my colleagues do this is because we understand how difficult that job is, how well they perform it and how much better it could be. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Mark. Thanks for tuning in. We make this program for listeners like you. So if you enjoyed this episode, share it with your community, write a review or drop us five stars. Every little bit helps spread the word. See you next time.